Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood, stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob had nothing, and he stood before a man who had everything, but he still believed he had something that Pharaoh didn't. He believed he possessed the blessing of God, and in, and in believing, he, he stood before him as one with uh, with privilege, uh, with grace to give, and with something to be generous with. And he offered it with generosity. Well, we've come to the end, in our, end of our series, The Life of Joseph, called God at Work When We Can't See Him. And throughout this series, we've been saying we follow an invisible God. We've been called to walk by faith. And yet, understanding God's working and his ways helps us to uh, find reassurance in those times in life when life otherwise doesn't make sense. And today, we're talking about God at work in our jobs, how he can use our work to make an impact in this world. And I think we can all start by agreeing that how we do our jobs and what we do through our jobs makes an incredible impact on the people around us, right? It was uh, just this spring that f uh, several former drivers for Amazon uh, filed uh, a, a class action suit in, uh, in court talking about uh, some of the problems and issues that they'd had. The lawsuit claims that Amazon's uh, harsh quotas, strict employee surveillance make it impossible for their drivers to actually make time for washroom breaks. And this causes significant problems. Uh, drivers testified to using plastic bottles and uh, dog waste bags to go in the back of the truck because if they were to pull over and actually find a restroom, stop there, uh, their supervisors would yell at them and possibly fire them. One woman said that she had to bring an extra change of clothes in case she went in her uniform and needed to make a change. Ryan Schilling testified to using dog waste bags, and he said, I fought for this country in Iraq, but I had an easier time going to the bathroom in a combat zone than I did while working as a driver for Amazon. Now, we need to say the case hasn't been settled. Amazon hasn't presented their counter-arguments, two sides to every story. We don't know exactly uh, where the truth will, will lie once it is all brought out. And even if it is, we don't know who's ultimately responsible. Was it shareholders uh, holding unreasonable expectations on uh, Amazon's productivity? Uh, could it have been, for instance, management not putting in adequate controls? Uh, could HR have uh, failed to listen to driver complaints and act on them? Or could it just have been a, uh, an overly ambitious uh, supervisor w working to make uh, his or her stats stand out? We don't know the answers to those questions, but as you think about this problem, you realize how we do our work impacts people. It, it affects people's lives. It, it changes the course of their lives and, and has an incredible impact on them. And often, 
God has more to do with our work than we often will recognize in the day-to-day. And so I'd like each of you to think about what you do, think about how you go about your days and your work, work weeks, and consider what what part God might be playing in them and how he might have you think differently, bringing your faith to your work and your understanding of his ways and his purposes for you. Uh, To do that, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 47. Um, I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 13 to 20 in the Black Church Bibles in the rack under the seat in front of you. That's on page 38. Uh, And again, Genesis 47, starting at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and then in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. This is the word of God. The first thing that we need to hear from this story and really let sink in is that God's answer to a famine was a spirit-filled bureaucrat. We tend to think of God's working in Bible studies and in prayer meetings, but God is also at work in boardrooms and negotiating tables. God's answer to a famine sometimes is a spirit-filled bureaucrat. Now, the book of Genesis begins with a story about work. It describes God putting in a six-day work week, creating, among other things, a garden. garden. Then he hires two landscapers, Adam and Eve. And things are going well until, through their sin, they ignore him. And in turn, it brings a curse on the land. And it says that work becomes difficult. While the book of Genesis starts with a story about work, it also ends with a story about work. Here, the curse of sin on the ground results in a famine. People are languishing. They are suffering under the circumstances that have been brought about by it. But as that disaster comes about, it is averted by, wait for it, someone doing their job. And we see God's hand in this, but we also see uh, people's ordinary, regular jobs being used by him to fulfill his purposes 
and to save many people's lives. So I want to look at the details of this story and then consider the implications together. First, the details. As the scene opens in verse 13, food has run out in Egypt and Canaan. The crops have failed for at least two years by this point, and the famine continues. When it says that the land of Canaan languished, the word languished there actually literally means burned. The heat will not let up, and the rains just don't come. And as a result, crops are, not, uh, are, are failing, and people are hungering. More than nine years ago at this point, God had predicted that all of this would happen. He'd given Pharaoh a dream, which Joseph had interpreted, and he had clearly laid out that there would be seven years of great abundance, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph had laid, a, laid out a plan, save during those years of abundance so that there is food left over to wait out, uh, wait out those terrible seven years of famine. And while Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, went about preparing during those seven years and uh, as a result was ready for the uh, seven years of famine when they came, it appears that most in the land were not. People had likely heard of the dream. How could that have been kept a secret? There, there must have been discussion in, in the nation about why, are we, why, why is the government saving up all of this grain? These are, these are good times. We should be enjoying them. And, and so often it's the case that when times are good, we assume times will always be good. When there is abundance, we assume it'll never run out. Only God said it will run out. And there had been warnings to prepare for that. By verse 15, people have run out of cash. They spent all they had on grain. And in doing so, they had assumed relief just must be around the corner. It's going to come. It'll all be over. And we'll be able to get back to normal. But that's not what happened. The entire nation is at Joseph's doorstep in verse 15, and they say, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? So in verse 16, Joseph proposes that the people trade their livestock for food. The animals are dying anyway because they have nothing to feed them. They might as well sell them to Joseph. It solves their food problem but it creates for Joseph a logistical nightmare as he has now been made guardian of the nation's animals. By verse 19, another year has passed. The famine still won't let up. They have nothing left, and so at this point, they offer themselves and they offer their land. They say, buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Again, Joseph concedes to their wishes. In exchange for the deed to their land, they receive food and seed to farm. And in return, they're required to pay 20%. Uh, a 20% of that harvest is going to go back to Pharaoh. Now, it's hard for us to read this in anything but a modern lens. Some of you have heard the story. Some of you maybe just reading it as we get, went through it this morning. And Joseph just feels like too much of a capitalist to you. Other, others of you are reading the story, and Joseph feels like too much of a socialist. It feels like an argument for big government, down with taxes. But 
In doing so, we're letting our history and our culture, our politics influence how we read the story, and we fail to hear it on its own terms. The, the Egyptians are not wanting to take Joseph to court for mistreatment. That's not what's happening here. And in fact, we hear their perspective in verse 25. They say to Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Offering yourself as a servant in ancient culture was one of the primary forms of welfare. It was what you did when you found yourself destitute and had no other options. And in, uh, here, for, for, for Joseph to respond to that with a 20% tax rate would have been seen as merciful and generous. At rates of between 30 and 40% were common. And so what you see in Joseph is in fact a wise and merciful leader for his day. By doing his job well, he saves a nation. He rescues people back from starvation. He saves a country that would have otherwise been destroyed. He's had to trust in God's word when the people around him doubted it. He's had to show self-control and self-restraint while people were wildly spending the, the proceeds of those seven rich years. And he would have felt pushback from that. He would have felt opposition uh, to his practices during those long seven years. He's had to plan ahead. He's had to think on his feet. He's had to be a good communicator. And God, throughout all of those tasks and responsibilities, has used him powerfully. And I'm not sure that we see our jobs in those terms. I'm not sure that we often approach the work that we do and see God's hand in it. We, we think of God as he's the one who provides manna. He doesn't work through farmers and regular agricultural practices. We see God miraculously healing the sick, not providing doctors to come alongside and offer cures. We see God turning water into wine, not providing the wisdom for people to plan so that they had enough wine in the first place, they didn't need water turned into wine. And, and, and what we're saying here is not negating the many miracles and unique manifestations of God's power in the scriptures, but recognizing that when we limit God to that, we, we, we relegate God to this tiny sliver of uh, his actual working in this world. We fail to see him in the millions of mundane tasks that people do day in, day out. And what we see here, if, if God can use a political appointee to save a nation, to rescue a people, and to carry out his purposes for the world, then he can probably use some of your tasks. He probably is using some of the responsibilities that you have in the mundane aspects of your job. And if that's true, you and I should be praying about our jobs, right? If that's true, we should be thinking, what might God's purposes be through uh, this, uh, this work that I'm doing? 
What, what place do I have in, in God's purposes? Am, am, I, am I carrying out these responsibilities with a conscious knowledge? God has a plan. God is at work. God is using me as a part of his grand purposes. Got to figure God into our work. Got to recognize God's place in our work. And we ought to reflect God in how we do our work. So we start by remembering that God's answer to a famine was a spirit-filled bureaucrat. Next, I want you to see that when your work is from God, even emails can become sacred things. That, that when you begin to include God in your work and you see his purposes and his plan in your work, then Monday to Friday becomes a holy calling. It becomes a recognition of God's purposes for you through the very ordinary things that you do and the recognition that with him, with your eyes on him, even emails can be sacred. Now, maybe for some of you, you would put Joseph in a different category. His, his, his job just seems extra glamorous. It's, it's special. But... Joseph had, a, in one sense, a, a prestigious job. It was also a job that came with tons of headaches. Uh, we've already seen that life in Egypt for a Jew in this period was one that came with great discrimination. Nobody would eat with you. They thought that was an abomination. It was detestable to, uh, to eat with a Hebrew, they said. His first edict as prime minister was to institute a 20% tax on the entire nation. And I don't suspect taxes then were any more popular than they are now. He would have felt the pressure and the opposition of people who were against him and who rejected him. We've already been told that Pharaoh decapitated one of his former employees. So as Joseph goes into work Day by day, he does so with a recognition, my head could literally come off if I fall out of favor with my boss. How do you deal with that kind of pressure? How do you deal with, with, with that kind of responsibility when you know so much is at stake, so much is on the line? Well, Joseph tells us. He, he tells us in Genesis 45, verse 7, it says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God sent me here. Joseph had many jobs, but he recognized his life and his work as a part of God's grand plan. Joseph had many employers, but Regardless of the employer, he had his eyes fixed on just one Lord, one person to, who, to whom he was ultimately accountable. In the New Testament, this command gets stated even more directly. Starting in Colossians 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Think about your job. Think about your employer, your boss, your supervisor, your directors, whoever it might be. Think about that role and recognize if God has placed you there, then it is God to whom, that you, to whom you are ultimately accountable. 
He is the one who has, who has given you this one, this, this position. As Joseph said, God sent me here. And if that's true, then your work ultimately has sacred importance. It has special value. And as you carry out that work in honor of God, seeking to reflect him, seeking to honor him, seeking to glorify him in this job, it changes how you do your work. Work becomes a means of reflecting God's purposes, God's values. Work becomes an opportunity to, to, to show the world uh, his, his goodness, his love, and his, uh, his transformation. You begin to realize people's bathroom breaks matter because people matter to God. And so you begin to see what could otherwise just be seen financial, distra- uh, financial transactions and opportunities for profit then take on a different dimension as you see people through God's eyes. You see opportunities to recognize him and to love your neighbor. Now, some of you might be doing an internal calculation here and saying, Paul, I, I get the Bible part, but honestly... You don't know my job. You don't know my boss. They're not a Christian. They wouldn't accept any of these things. And I guess I would, I would take all of that, and I would say uh, Joseph was, was for, for his boss, uh, we've already seen that he's decapitated and former employee. He is a sun-worshipping Egyptian, didn't necessarily have anything to do with Joseph's God, and so Joseph had to work hard at, at honoring his employer. But still, he found a way to glorify his God. He didn't lose sight of the fact of who had ultimately given him that role, and so he was going to carry it out with a sense of accountability to him. If Joseph had an Egyptian sun worshiper as his boss, the verse in Rome, the verse in uh, Uh, in Colossians that I read for you here, is directed towards Roman slaves. These are people that have even fewer freedoms, fewer uh, opportunities to uh, uh, carve out a a job that will reflect God's glory, and yet the command is the same. And so surely there is opportunities for all of us. We honor our employers, but ultimately we seek to please God in our work. And it changes how we approach it, how we see opportunities. Now, a while back, researchers from Yale and Michigan State University did uh, a research study. They wanted to know how, how do people in jobs that our society undervalues, how do they cope with that? How do they deal with some of the, the struggles that come, along, come with a job that doesn't come with a lot of prestige? For their research, they decided to uh, choose a particular segment. They, they studied hospital janitors. And what they found surprised them. They thought that what they were going to do is, was to find people who uh, were, 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 were struggling with people's uh, poor impressions of their job and their status. And what they found that was among this research group, there was a significant uh, portion of them that while they were technically hospital janitors, didn't see themselves as part of the hospital cleaning staff at all. 
They saw themselves as an essential part of patient recovery. And so while they were carrying out all of their regular uh, cleaning responsibilities, they made a point of getting to know patients, taking time with families, offering a glass of water, putting out a box of Kleenex, offering a word of encouragement. And what they found was that as they reflected their values in the jobs that they had, those people found more significance in their roles and more satisfaction in what they did. That there was a room for them in their jobs to show a love for their neighbor, to carry out their, their responsibilities in a way that would bless the people that they, had, uh, that they were working around. And in doing so, their jobs took on greater meaning and satisfaction and significance to them. I wonder where that line comes in your work. I wonder where the opportunities are in your job to reflect something of the goodness of God and his calling upon your life. How do you reflect through your job that you love God and love your neighbor? And how does that, how does that transform the way that you approach your work, the way that you see your, uh, the people? Uh, how, how do, how do the, the different uh, responsibilities get uh, rethought in light of who God is and what he's called you to be? What would it mean for God's heart to be reflected in how you craft policies, how you care for children, how you lay out plans, how you relate to coworkers, uh, how you sweep the floors? If God has placed you in this role, he has sent you there. He has purposes for you there, and he wants you to reflect his glory for you there. And if Joseph's any indication, your job has the potential to change lives and to bring great good to the people around you. Now, we could end there, but maybe there's some of you who are thinking, but what about me? What about if I don't have a job, or if I'm past my job, if I'm, I'm retired, does my life now have no meaning? Does it no, no longer have any opportunity to be used and to, be, uh, to, to glorify God? Well, what I love about this chapter is while the main central section will focus on Joseph, uh, a man whose work was used to bring deliverance to a nation to save people from starvation, the beginning and the end of the chapter uh, deal not with Joseph, but they look at his father, Jacob. And they show how someone in their retirement years is able to have a, uh, an equally profound impact in people's lives. So we've talked about Joseph. Let's look at his father, Jacob. Jacob shows uh, how to impact the world in your retirement. Now, when Jacob gets to Egypt, he is about 130 years old at this point. Uh, lifespans were longer then, but he's still nearing the end of his life. He will spend another uh, 17 years in Egypt, but he is definitely in his retirement age. He's, he's been a, a sheep herder, which in uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, society was 
the bottom rung of social privilege and uh, social standing. Uh, he is not someone that people look up to or aspire to uh, have that kind of job. He would be looked down upon. Additionally, he's been a nomad, which means he doesn't own land, he doesn't have a home to return to, uh, he is someone who travels from place to place and so is without uh, the, the security that comes from uh, owning your own home, owning your own piece of this earth. After two years of famine, he's broke. Uh, money has run out. And he is feeling the, the pain of, uh, of, the, of the famine. And so when he appears before Pharaoh, he's at rock bottom. Pharaoh, as we've said, as we've, we've seen and you can imagine, he is the most powerful, the most rich person he has ever met, ever could hope to meet. Uh, he is the head of the most powerful nation in the region. And so as uh, Jacob appears before Pharaoh, you literally have rock bottom, the man with nothing, meeting Pharaoh, the, the, the man who has everything. What would you say to someone like that? If, if it was you and you were this low-class, broke, homeless guy appearing before Pharaoh, what would you say to him? Well, Jacob says to him essentially, Hello, Mr. Pharaoh, I'd like to bless you. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood, stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob had nothing, and he stood before a man who had everything, but he still believed he had something that Pharaoh didn't. He believed he possessed the blessing of God and in, and in believing, he, he stood before him as one with, uh, with privilege, uh, with grace to give, and with something to be generous with. And he offered it with generosity. He, he believed that because of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 too. He believed that God had blessed him in order to be a blessing. And he, he had received that blessing, and he was going to share it. He saw that as fundamental to uh, his calling as an individual. That in, in following the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, he had become the, the, the recipient of God's grace and God's blessing, but he knew it, just, it wasn't just for him. He knew it was to share. And so he meets Pharaoh and he offers to bless him. If you're a child of God, God has given you that same calling. He has given you that same calling. We, we receive blessing from God. We have something that the world doesn't have. God has given us in Christ hope. He has given us joy. He has given us power by his Holy Spirit. He has given us the, the hope of eternity, the joy of our sins forgiven, and in that blessing, he has said, that blessing is never just for you. He blesses us in order that we might be a blessing, that we might share blessing. If you're retired, think about Jacob. 
In your retirement, you can bless the people of this world, and you can show, the, you can show people how to bless this world. Bless them with your words. Bless them with your encouragement. Bless them with your, your support. Bless them with your prayers. And, and maybe some of you are saying, yeah, but Paul, there's so much wrong in this world. There's, there's so much that, that it just, I, I, can't, I can't bless that. But remember, Jacob is meeting with the sun worshiper. If Jacob can bless Pharaoh, surely you can find something to bless in the people around you. Surely you can find something to, to lay hold of, something to affirm, something to encourage, something to support. And while you do that, do so with the conviction that you follow the God who is the source of all blessing. And so point them to hope, point them to his salvation, point them to his forgiveness, his truth, his love. God has given each of us something that is precious. If you are a child of God, you, you know treasure in Christ. You have blessing, and God has called you to be a blessing. That's not all, though. That's the, begin that's the beginning of the chapter from Jacob. Now we'll pop down to the end of the chapter with Jacob, and this really strange little ex exchange uh, that takes place between him and his son Joseph. He makes his son swear a solemn vow. I'm going to tell you something serious. This is really formal. I don't want you to forget this. And even though you're my son, I'm going to ask you to swear it like we're in a court of law because this is important. Hear what he says in verses 29 and 30. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Nothing wrong with Egypt. This is not, a, this is not an, an ethnic rivalry going on here. This is not nationalism. This is not nostalgia. What is taking place here is Jacob recognizes God had made a promise to him. God had, had promised him the promised land. And he wanted to show Joseph and all who would follow that even though he hadn't received it, even though he was now going to be soon dying, he was still clinging to the promises of God. He was still holding on to God's plan, God's purposes. He was leaning in to what God had revealed, and he was not going to let go. He showed through his parting words, his final words to his son in, in this little exchange, that this hope that had motivated his life and his faith in God was not something that would, would pass. He would cling to that till his dying breath. No matter how comfortable his life might become in Egypt, it would not be his home because his father had promised him another place. He had his sight set on all that God had promised him. The New Testament makes this even more explicit. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people are obsessed with this world. They are obsessed with the things of this world. We, 
we, we complain about the things that are not right in this world, and we become bitter about the things that we don't have in this world. Either way, it's obsessed with everything in this world. And it would be easy for people who are traveling into Egypt, who are going to be on the receiving end of the favor that Joseph had, uh, had purchased for them as one who was lifted up in the land. It would easy, be easy for them to be caught up in all that Egypt offered. Take advantage of those extra perks. We know someone who stands before Pharaoh. And Jacob said, that's, that's not how the people of God live. The people of God have one eye on the promised land. The people of God live with their bags packed for God is coming. We are citizens of heaven. We've been called to another place. And we stand looking with anticipation for what God will do. If you need convincing that our world is obsessed with, with, with this world and the things of this world, I read recently that the global cryogenics industry is now worth $20 billion. People all over investing huge sums of money to, to freeze their bodies in hopes that someday, somehow, there will be a cure, that they will be able to live forever in this world. And if our world needs anything, it needs more people like Jacob who in their dying years show that their hope is in another place. Show, show that they are citizens of heaven, living for glory, their eyes on God, never letting go of the hope that he holds out to each of us in Christ. You can do that in your retirement. In fact, the less you have, the better. It only magnifies your hope, only magnifies your trust. It's a way that you can model the answer to a problem that our world just doesn't have solutions for. So where do you need to respond to this message? Do you check your faith at the door when you go to work? Do you, do you struggle to see a way that God might relate to the things that you are doing, the emails that you are sending, the responsibilities you're carrying out? Is God just the Lord of the Bible studies and the God of last resorts for you. Let him in to all that you do, to all of your life. Reflect his glory in your job. Reflect his purposes, his values. Seeing your job as a way to serve others and reflect his values, yeah, it increases the meaning and satisfaction of what you're doing. But it also impacts people. It shows that you love your neighbor, and people feel that love. People feel that impact. We've been called to bless people, and you can do that whether you have a job or not. So share the blessings you've been given, and show that you are a citizen of another place, that you have your eyes fixed on the hope that God holds out to us in heaven, and so you have a freedom to make this world a little more like heaven 
through your actions, through your responsibilities, and yes, through your work. Let's look to him in prayer and call on his help. Father in heaven, would you open our eyes to all that you're doing around us? Surely your plan is so much bigger than the little part we give you credit for. Help us to cooperate with what you're doing in our jobs. Help us to reflect you. Help us to see the people, not just the tasks. And don't let us get lost in our jobs or live like this world is all that there is. Give us heaven's values as we set our hope on all that you've called us to. For we ask you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.